listeners, and welcome to this episode of Sell and Gene, the podcast. I'm your host, Erin Harris. My guest for this episode is Regenex Bios VP of Regulatory and Science Policy, Dr. Nina Hunter. Nina, thank you so much for your time and welcome to Sell and Gene, the podcast. Thank you, Erin. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. So in doing a little bit of research on your background, I saw that you spent more than a decade with the FDA. Uh, You held three different yet equally important roles there. And what I wanted to start off with is to talk about what did you take away from your time with the FDA that you've been able to incorporate into your role at Regenex Bio? Yeah, thank you, Erin. I did hold three very different roles at the FDA. And looking back, I would say that, you know, whether I was working on molecular assays or on orphan drug policy or even establishing a new patient affairs function, the core themes of my work were always grounded in science and data and always having patients at the forefront of decision making. At the end of the day, the FDA is a science-based organization, and I was fortunate in a way to grow up at a place that has a wealth of data, information, and expertise where I was continuously learning and contributing to public service. So as you can tell, I have the greatest respect for the agency and for the people who work there. And so I'm often asked why I left. And um, for me, it was about challenging myself to apply those regulatory and scientific skills that I acquired in a different way now, so from an industry perspective, but while maintaining the same focus to values that are important to me. So to continue to learn new science and technology, to make decisions based on data, and most importantly, to continue to always have the best interests of patients and their families in mind. And I am once again, very fortunate to have found a company and a role where I'm able to apply these core principles in what I do. So it really has been an easy transition for me, um, despite transitioning during the pandemic, but I think that would probably take a whole other podcast to cover. Oh, goodness. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, I would say so. Well, I'm glad it was an easy transition despite uh, the pandemic and going from the FDA to Regenex Bio, it seems like it was a pretty pretty seamless fit. Definitely. Good, good. All right, I want to talk a little bit about the accelerated approval pathway. Let our listeners know, what might they not know about the accelerated approval pathway and and why is it pertinent to specifically gene therapies? Yeah, these are great questions, um, especially given how the accelerated approval pathway has been highlighted quite a bit in the press lately, from approval decisions to even potential regulatory reform. So I hope I'm not oversimplifying here, but the term accelerated approval is a regulatory term. It does not simply mean to go fast. It's a powerful tool that the FDA has in its toolbox to expedite product development, but it has a very distinct set of criteria and was created for a very different reason than the other expedited programs that listeners are probably familiar with. Um, The accelerated approval pathway is not just for any drug or disease. To qualify, the disease must be serious and the drug must have a meaningful advantage over other drugs for the same disease. And so from a regulatory and legal standpoint, it's important to recognize that an approval granted to a human drug or biologic under the accelerated approval pathway is not considered a lesser or partial approval compared to traditional approval. So sometimes I see those terms sort of get mixed up. 
Um, so as most of you probably know, this pathway allows a sponsor to rely on surrogate endpoints in pivotal trials to provide the substantial evidence needed to show effectiveness. And this makes a lot of sense, right? So when a particular disease, for example, takes a long time to progress, and if you had to directly measure the clinical benefit, it could take a very long time. But by measuring the drug's effect on a surrogate endpoint that is reasonably likely to predict clinical benefit, the trial can take less time to complete. And for serious or life-threatening diseases, patients will gain access to the drug sooner. And the sponsor is, of course, required to then conduct a post-marketing trial to confirm that clinical benefit. And that's a big requirement of the accelerator approval. Um, I guess another example to highlight is if the clinical outcome is rare and you have to recruit a lot of patients to have an adequate number of events for that clinical outcome. But if you can rely on the use of a surrogate endpoint, you can show the drug's effect based on a smaller group of patients. And so back to the second part of your question, as we know, gene therapies often target serious or life-threatening diseases, including rare diseases, right? Many of them are rare diseases. And so this represents a major advancement in patient treatment and accelerated approval is very much pertinent to gene therapies. Um, I guess one last point I will add is that the accelerated approval pathway was developed with a lot of flexibility. And so whether or not a surrogate is reasonably likely to predict clinical benefit is a judgment call. It really does depend on our understanding of the disease and the data. And for gene therapies targeting monogenic disorders where the biological plausibility is backed by strong mechanism of action, for example, and that therapy is well understood, then accelerated approval makes a lot of sense. Um, I mean, it's not a requirement for accelerated approval to have the to to directly have to get at the underlying cause of the disease um, rather than treating the symptoms. But it's definitely the power of gene therapy. Um, so taken together, I think it really can allow for smaller, faster, and more efficient trials to be run that might not otherwise be able to be successfully run, and for patients who might not otherwise get them. Good. That's great. Okay. Thank you for that. That was a very clear explanation. And uh, I think you've uh, cleared up a lot of perhaps misconceptions about what accelerated approval pathway actually is. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the current potential regulatory roadblocks for gene therapies. Um, we hear that term a lot and we write about it a lot, the regulatory roadblocks. Uh, and so I want to make sure that we talk through the potential solutions too. So what are the roadblocks and what are the, those potential solutions or paths to improvement? Yeah. So, so as you know, the, the gene therapy field has been growing really fast during the past decade. And, and that's all due to advancing science and innovative technologies, but the regulatory framework that, you know, needs to evolve and, and hasn't evolved as quickly as the science has grown and, and needs to, to move forward in order to maximize the potential of gene therapy to help patients. Um, I guess stepping back, I, I would say we have to appreciate that the FDA always does try to strike the right balance between evidence and access. So how much evidence is required before approving a drug while being mindful that patients need those promising therapies as soon as the data show that the benefits outweigh the risk. 
Um, so back to your question about regulatory roadblocks, I think there are quite a few, but if it's okay, I'm going to stick to two um, around accelerator approval. Sure. Um, first is the availability of accelerator pathway for, for gene therapies. I think gene therapies should be eligible for accelerated approval if they meet the criteria. We should not limit this pathway to only a subset of gene therapies by applying additional conditions. For example, limiting the pathway to only those gene therapies that directly target certain genetic changes. And I think it's unclear at the moment, at least to me, because accelerated approval has yet to be applied to gene therapy and whether there's a higher regulatory bar. I think there's been some inconsistencies and confusions around this lately. And, you know, bottom line, as the law was written, it should come down to whether a surrogate endpoint is reasonably likely to predict clinical benefit. So that's, that's one piece. And then I would say another challenge specifically for gene therapy is durability as it relates to accelerated approval. Again, I think it's you know, maybe too early to know, but this set of challenges may be complicated by disease-specific considerations. And the question is, how does duration of benefit fit into this regulatory paradigm? I, you know, if you think about it, there's a sweet spot along the spectrum of time for accelerated approval. And if we're pushing data requirements out closer to clinical benefit, then we really lost sort of the beauty and the potential of this important tool. So to address some of these regulatory challenges, um, Regenix Bio and Solid Biosciences um, came together to advance opportunities to leverage this pathway for gene therapy candidates. The two companies uh, founded a nonprofit called the Pathway Development Consortium last year. And the mission is really to bring together patients, industry, regulators, academics, payers, and other stakeholders to meaningful scientific and policy discussions. And, and again, like the field is moving at such a rapid pace. And so change, like it can't happen on an individual basis, meaning each company can't be doing this on their own, in their own way, and having the same conversations with FDA over and over separately, right? There's this tremendous workload at FDA too. and so it would just be much more efficient to apply cross-learnings and potential solutions together collaboratively. And, and of course, there are other collaborative groups working out there um, in the cell gene therapy space, and they have been for a long time. And the Pathway Development Consortium is not meant to be redundant to those efforts. Um, we really are unique in the sense that it's specifically focused on AV gene therapy, science, and policy. Excellent, excellent. Uh, I want to talk a little bit more about um, other ways to help address regulatory roadblocks, building on what you just explained. Uh, how and why can identifying biomarkers and surrogate endpoints help address regulatory roadblocks, would you say? Yeah, so so at the core of accelerated approval pathway is really the question of like what endpoint can be considered reasonably likely to predict clinical benefit, right? And, and these are surrogate biomarkers. So actually one of the recent work products of this pathway development consortium was to publish a white paper on this topic. Um, as part of that white paper, we proposed a framework of different categories of AAV gene therapies that target the underlying genetic changes that cause diseases. And we proposed a generalized, um, a generalized approach that aimed at clarifying the evidence needed to support that approval. And so the goal is really to, to 
pull together a systematic way to consider different types of indications and the general type of evidence that's needed to support the use of accelerated approval. And, you know, it's important to note that this framework was purposely published as a draft, and, and we are hoping that the community will really review and provide feedback to, to make it more useful for everybody. Um, at the end of the day, it's, it's about gaining understanding, and that helps everyone involved, and better biomarkers and surrogates will expedite development and get effective treatments to patients faster while ensuring safety to the greatest extent. Um, you know, as I mentioned before, in many cases, relying on a traditional clinical endpoint could take a very long time to conduct a trial, and it, it could not be possible for some diseases. And these are real hurdles to the developing, um, you know, to developing life-saving gene therapies. So really just reiter uh, reiterates how important it is to identify surrogate endpoints that can be used to support accelerated approval. Good, thank you. Uh, do you know where we can find the draft? Yeah, so if you go to our website, it's pathwaydevelopmentconsortium.org. We have um, the white paper published there, and we also have two other white papers that we published previously, um, focusing specifically on um, the Duchenne uh, muscular dystrophy disease space. So please take a look, and, and we would love all feedback. Good, good. Okay, thank you. All right, listeners, so head over to Regenex Bio's website and check those out. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about uh, public-private collaborations and how how can they help usher in the next wave of gene therapies? Yeah, so so public-private collaborations are, are critical to addressing these challenges and, and many others. And you know, like I said before, all of this will take a collective effort. And I think most importantly, like FDA has shown a real desire to support and encourage the development of gene therapies and a real support of public-private partnerships. So I feel like it's a, it's a powerful tool and, and these partnerships can create various forums for, for collaborations to foster understanding between FDA and sponsors to really help the field move forward. Um, you know, from all stages, from early early development all the way through to post-approval. And so I've already mentioned the Pathway Development Consortium. Um, I want to mention another one that Regenix is proud to be a part of, and this is the Bespoke Gene Therapy Consortium. And um, I'm sure you've heard about this in, in the recent months um, as it was just launched in November. Definitely. So this is a big consortium, right, between the foundation for NIH, NIH, FDA, industry, and, and nonprofit organizations where there's this real recognition across the entire field of how important it is to come together and share learnings. And so the goal really of that consortium is to streamline AAV manufacturing and regulatory frameworks to, to increase accessibility of gene therapies for ultra rare diseases. So we're exciting. Um, we're excited to see, see how that progresses and, and I'm really proud to be a part of that too. Good, good. Thank you. Uh, we definitely, we've even written about the bespoke consortium, yeah. uh, on cell and gene. So uh, we know exactly what you're talking about and glad to hear that Regenex Bio is part of it. Uh, we've come to kind of the formal end of our our podcast, but at the end of every episode, I like to talk to my guests about uh, something that kind of gives us a glimpse into who they are when they're not in the office of the lab. And so uh, my question for you is, what's your favorite thing to do on the weekend? Yeah. So, you know, I'm sure, you know, maybe many working parents can relate that Sometimes weekends are actually busier than weekdays. 
you know, sometimes I get into my office on Monday mornings and like get my coffee and I sit down at my very clean and organized desk and take a deep breath. And it's like, wow, you know, it's so quiet here. Um, but yeah, back to your question. I think, you know, if the stars are aligned, I actually try really hard to get all the chores and errands and chauffeuring to activities into one day so that we can have one, like what I call fun day for a weekend. Um, I really do love spending time outdoors. And, and I know that sounds really cliche, but I feel like given this weird virtual, non-virtual space that we've been in and out of over the past two years, it's so important to me that I get my family outside. And honestly, I'm also just trying to get my two daughters off their screens. <laughs> um, but we we love, we love to bike, to hike, we play tennis and, and ski. And actually we just um, got a canoe. And so I'm really looking forward to trying it out this spring in a reservoir um, near where we live. Oh, that's so wonderful. And I, I think if you had asked me, I think my response would have word for word been what yeah. you just said. Uh, so, <laughs> so I completely understand. Uh, and and I, I completely understand with the fresh air thing. We live in Pennsylvania, so it's very cold right now. And mm-hmm. I'm, I mean, it's, there'll be the below freezing temps. And I'm like, just go outside for like five minutes, bundle up, get some fresh air and come back and you'll be fine. Yeah. So <laughs> anything you can do to move your body and get off the screens. Yes. Yes. That's the very, challenge. very important. <laughs> um, well, great. Thank you uh, to, to you, Nina. This has been a lot of fun and I hope you'll come back soon and talk to us uh, again about what Regenex Bio is up in the in doing from a regulatory standpoint. Yes, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Our listeners, well, that's the end of our episode. Thanks for listening in and we will see you next time. Mm -hmm.